This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. All of you know that the title of the conference is focused on the church. And over the course of the weekend, the four plenary sessions are going to be, first of all, tonight you shall be my witness, which actually is a misquote because it's plural. Um, So tonight we focus on the church as a witness, then later Stephen Baker will speak on the bridegroom and his bride, and that focuses on the church being the bride of Christ. And then Max will speak on the church as the mother of the faithful, and then David will conclude with a sermon on the gates of hell not prevailing against her, which really is focused on the church as as God's army, the church militant. Now, as I prepared for this, it occurred to me that we hadn't done something we need to do, and that is we need to open up the importance of the church, because we take it for granted, but we can't take that for granted today. So I want to start by talking about why the church is important and how we know the church is important and what has happened to the doctrine of the church in the last hundred years. Now first, let me read from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. We find there this text. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Thank you. Thank you. Where would I be without Lucas Weeks? Where would my daughter be without Lucas Weeks? (laughs) And others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, we all know that part of the story, and we all know how controversial this is in terms of uh, arguments between Protestants and Roman Catholics. But notice what Jesus says next. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, in my lifetime, as I've gotten older, it has become very apparent to me that the church is... Is, is easily dismissed by us. And no text makes it more clear than this statement. As soon as Jesus says he will build his church upon the confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of the living God, he immediately shows that he has delegated authority to the officers of Christ's church, starting with Peter. But then if you go over to Matthew 18, a few chapters later, and you look at the word you, 
and you look at the verbs, it goes from singular to plural. So here we're dealing with you. Uh, I will give you. And then when we go to Matthew 18, it's a parallel quotation. And there it's plural. And so what Jesus is saying is not simply that he is the foundation of the church, the rock upon which he will build his church, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, the confession of Peter. But immediately, he declares that Peter and then the other disciples will have the power of the keys of the church. And we know what keys are. Keys are uh, a tool that opens and shuts a door. And it's apparent that none of us really think about what it means for men to have the power of the keys. Um, Now today those men are officers, but I want you to think about that because, um, you know, we know the text that on this rock I will build my church, and we get all caught in thinking about the relative position of, you know, the Pope versus uh, the confession of Peter theologically, who Jesus was, but immediately Jesus says, that he will give him the keys, and whatever he binds on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever he looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, these truths are the foundation of the church, of Christ's church, of Christ's ecclesia, of his gathering, of his assembly, of his covenant people, of his body, of his household, his church. These truths are not the foundation of the Christian home. They're not the foundation of Christian conferences or Christian camps or Christian campus parachurch organizations or Christian missions or Christian women's Bible study ministries or Christian publishing or Christian coalitions, whether gospel or political. The salvation of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is the rock, the foundation, the cornerstone of the church. And then he says, if you, if you listen to the text, he says, what? He says, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And again, we take as it a promise, and David will speak on it at the end of the conference, but one thing that we maybe don't think of often enough is the fact that if the gates of hell will not overpower the church, it must mean that the gates of hell hate the church. All right? We don't have a a similar promise about the family and the home. And so the gates of hell will seek to destroy the church and will fail. And God, through Christ, his delegated authority to open and shut the church doors to Peter and to his disciples, the apostles, and to the officers of Christ today, of his church. Now, what does this say about the church and about its place in God's plan and about its place in Satan's opposition to God's plan? The duty of church officers to protect the church by using the power of the keys is also spoken of in Acts 20, when the Apostle Paul commands the Ephesian elders to guard God's flock, to shepherd God's flock. We read in Acts 20, 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so here we have a verse that we would all like to individualize and personalize by thinking about how Jesus bought me with his own blood. But here we have the Apostle Paul commanding the Ephesian elders to be faithful in their use of the keys because the one that they're guarding is the church has been purchased with the blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so the motivation for the officer's work in the power of the keys is how precious the church is because it has been purchased with the blood of Christ. And if we go on in Scripture and we look at other places, we see again and again this theme of how precious the church is to God. We're not simply Christian individuals, but we're individual members of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, and 28. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And so again, if we think of ourselves individually... We miss the first part of verse 27 where it says you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And then the list of gifts that are given for the church. And then, of course, uh, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, that's the classic location, right? How much does Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her cleanse her, the washing of water in the word, present her to himself in all her glory, no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish, but that she would be holy and blameless. How precious is the church to Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Timothy 3.15, in case I am delayed, the Apostle Paul says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then Revelation 3. You know that there are letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation, and I'm just going to read one verse, Revelation 3.22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's interesting what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus sent individual letters to the seven churches. His letters were not sent to individual Christians' families or households. We listen to these passages of God's word, and we cannot doubt the glory of the church. 
what tender solicitude our Lord has for her, what gifts she has been given by the Holy Spirit, what primacy of position and loyalty she holds in all the hearts of the godly, seeing the love and care for her our Lord himself has. The church is indeed the beloved bride of Christ, and he is at work within her. So she will be holy and blameless. And so the early church father, Cyprian, who was martyred in 258, he said this, he said, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. I'm going to read an extended section from the beginning of Book 4 of the Institutes of John Calvin. You'll probably hear both these quotes again during the weekend, but let's start out with this one. This is what John Calvin, the reformer, says about the church. He says, it is the church into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons. Not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith. For what God has joined together, it is not lawful to put asunder, Mark 10, 9. So that for those to whom he is father, the church may also be mother. And this was so not only under the law, but also after Christ's coming, as Paul testifies when he teaches that we are the children of the new and heavenly Jerusalem in Galatians 4.26. But because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, let us learn, even from the simple title, Mother, how useful, indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed for her school until we have been pupils all our lives. Furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. As Isaiah and Joel testify, Ezekiel agrees with them when he declares that those whom God rejects from heavenly life will not be enrolled among God's people. And then he says, God's fatherly favor and the especial witness of spiritual life are limited to his flock so that it is always disastrous to leave the church. Now today, the way we handle that is that if we don't like the discipline of our elders, the rebuke and the admonishment of our elders, we go to another church. And so... We haven't left the church. There are lots of churches. Take your pick. But you have to ask yourself, when it says that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, to whom does that apply? (laughs) If you could just take a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here and jump around, choosing to whom you'll listen at a particular time, where, where in fact are the keys used? And this is the reason why somewhere around four years ago, I remember reading, I think, somebody saying that they felt that the best predictor 
of sanctification and growth in the life of a Christian was their long-term commitment to a particular church. And that resonated with me. Um, Mary Lee and I were just up in Wisconsin at the uh, church that I formerly served before coming to Bloomington. And it's interesting, you know, when you go back, what you do is you, you look for who's there and who's not there, right? And of course, by this time, because it's been 21 years, nobody can blame me for them not being at the church, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it really is so very sad to think of who has abandoned the church. Now, are they still going to a church? Oh, oh, I'm sure they are. You know, I'm sure that they would be quick to trot out this or that church that now has their loyalty. And, of course, we know what their loyalty is. As soon as they're rebuked, they're gone. And, and, and listen, I cannot tell you how often at this church... We have warned people who join this church and they say they will submit to the discipline of the church, you know. We say to them, now, I know you and, and it's all buddy-buddy right now and you just love us and you just couldn't wait to come here, right? But when you get disciplined, you know what you're going to do? You're going to turn tail and run. Oh, And it just happens year in, year out. You know, Calvin is not unusual in what he says. This is what is said by all fathers of the church through the ages. What they say is it's always disastrous to leave the church. And the reason we leave the church... is because of our pride. That's why we leave the church. It's always pride. It's not we have some high principle, you know, that we see through the elders. No, generally the elders see through us. Right? And it's not because they are prophets It's because when Jesus said that if you know how to read the clouds and the weather, you ought to be able to know how to read the times, they began to get good at recognizing that if if there were certain characteristics of individuals, those characteristics generally went with a certain sin, and they began to probe, and they're just like doctors. and, and, And then when they talk to us about the sin, and we get angry, and we say, you know, back off, and they don't back off, and then our wife says back off, and then they really better back off. And so Calvin says at the end here, it is always disastrous to leave the church. And this is book four, 1.4. Let me read from the Westminster Confession of Faith of the Church, chapter 25. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. 
And then number two, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as under the law, as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God. Now listen to this, all right? through which men are ordinarily saved and union with which is essential to their best growth and service. This is not a parachurch ministry. This is not listening to Alistair Begg on radio. This is not reading blogs. This is not going to conferences. This is not BSF. It's the church. And if you look at Scripture, you wouldn't believe how much love there is for the church in the Christian's prayer book, the book of Psalms. Let me just read a couple Psalms to you, okay? Psalm 122, a song of ascents, going up on pilgrimage. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. How about Psalm 87? A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy man, the mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. And then, you ready? Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Then verse 5, But of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will count when he registers the peoples. This one was born there, Selah. Then those who sing as well as those who play the flute shall say, All my springs of joy are in you. And you, you know, look at your heart are all your springs of joy in Zion, in Jerusalem, in the church. And negatively, Psalm 73, you know that psalm is a psalm where you have all this intense um, disappointment uh, bordering on cynicism of the psalmist over the prosperity of the wicked. And he just is falling and falling and falling into bitterness. And then, where does he get better? Well, we read, beginning with verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They've increased in wealth. Surely, in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And then it says, until I came into the sanctuary of God. 
And then I perceive their end. And, you know, we think, okay, so it's so encouraging to come into the church and to greet people and to see the children and to get hugs and to be loved, and, 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 right? And so that must be what he's talking about, that he was growing bitter over the prosperity of the wicked, and, and, and he was almost ready to betray the faith until he came to the sanctuary of God. And then he was hugged, he was kissed, he was loved, he held the little babies, right? No. What it says is when he came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceive their end. In other words, when we come into the church of Jesus Christ, we don't just see the glorious things that God has given to his bride. We also see the end of the wicked. And that's what saved him. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. So it's not just the love of the church, but the church reveals to us what? It's a witness to heaven and hell, to the last things. And we see it makes no sense for us to be envious of the wicked. Because their feet are on slippery places, and they're about to be cast into hell. And we discover that when we come into the sanctuary of God. As I was preparing, I was listening, and when Taylor came in to greet me, I don't get to see him often enough now, um, I had on music, bluegrass. And so as I was preparing, I was listening, and, and I, I've listened to this one CD probably 5,000 times. I always listen to it when I write. And here were the words of the song that I was listening to this afternoon as I was writing this. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a song that's been popularized by Ricky Skaggs, but, but here it is. There's a little mountain church in my thoughts of yesterday where friends and family gathered for the Lord. There an old-fashioned preacher taught the straight and narrow way for what few coins the congregation could afford. Dressed in all our Sunday best, we sat on pews of solid oak, and I remember how our voices filled the air, how Mama sounded like an angel on those high soprano notes. And when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Looking back now, that little mountain church house has become my life's cornerstone. It was there in that little mountain church house I first heard the word I've based my life upon. At that all-day Sunday singing and dinner on the ground, many were the souls that were revived, while my brothers and my sisters, who have gone on to glory land, slept in peace in the maple grove nearby. You know, and you listen to that kind of thing and you think, ah, brah, brah, brah. You know, they don't mean any of it. You know, ignorant people, bluegrass music. And what you find is in this uh, simple, uh, this simple music, what you find is the same thing you find in the book of Psalms. You find the love of the church. They don't phrase it the same way. But it's not the building. But it's the work of God that is done in the bride of Christ. 
few areas of Christian doctrine have been so neglected over the past century in these United States as the doctrine of the church. And as the doctrine of the church has gone by the wayside, so many Christians, the love of the church has grown cold in. We love ourselves, we love our nation, we love our wives, we love our families, we love our cities and states and basketball teams, we love our branch of the armed forces. And we even love, Heidi does anyhow, the color purple. But who loves the bride of Christ? Who loves the bride of Christ? Why have we lost the love of the church? Now, I want, I want to open this up a little bit to you because I think it's so important that you understand this, okay? It's my contention that probably the most significant factor for the loss of the love of the church this past century was the fundamentalist controversy in the early 1900s, a century ago. Unbelievers who commonly are referred to as liberals had taken over the organizational apparatus of most denominations, including religious publishing houses, denominational offices, missions, and seminaries. Christians in these denominations were scandalized that unbelievers were in control of their denominations and churches, so they mounted a work of reformation aimed at removing the unbelievers from the seats of influence and structural power. Now, there were five doctrines of Scripture that came to summarize the faithlessness and unbelief of the liberals, and these doctrines came to be referred to as the fundamentals. And so those fighting for reform were known as fundamentalists, and the five doctrines were these. Number one, the plenary and verbal inspiration of Scripture. Number two, the authenticity of the miracles recorded in Scripture. Number three, the virgin birth of Jesus. Number four, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And number five, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. As the battle for true Christian faith was waged and fundamentalists sought to reform the church, the main division within Protestantism was no longer between denominations and churches, but rather within denominations and churches. Okay? The struggle was fierce, and few of the seminaries or mission agencies or denominations were reformed. The unbelievers were successful in holding on to the denominations and churches, and so having lost, fundamentalists left their churches and denominations and founded some new churches, some new denominations, new mission agencies, new seminaries. And uh, most of us are familiar with J. Gresham Machen's departure from Princeton Seminary and the founding of Westminster Seminary and the denomination called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But the struggle had been fierce, and it left a bitter taste in many people's mouths. Local congregations, small communities, the boards of trustees and faculties of colleges, even marriages and families had been divided, and many resented such divisions and did their best to leave them behind. Also, some of the new denominations and seminaries that had been founded went on dividing over secondary matters not central to the Christian faith. Faith, things like eschatology, smoking, dancing, the use of alcohol, etc. So this left a sad state of affairs 
in which many old denominational churches had a mixture of Christians and unbelievers. Now, mind you, when I say unbelievers, I mean those who denied the faith. And they were all together in the same congregation. Ask yourself, how does a board of elders shepherd a flock that is divided between those who believe in miracles and those who don't? Okay, you with me? How do elders shepherd a flock that is divided between those who trust the Bible and those who don't? Between those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and those who don't. In fact, when the board of elders itself is divided over these foundational tenets of the Christian faith, How do they shepherd the flock? In other words, how do they exercise the power of the keys? And so, Mary Lee's and my parents grew up during that time. As a matter of fact, they were at Wheaton during the time that Oliver Buswell was fired as the president. Nobody could quite figure out why Buswell was fired. But he was very involved in working for reform of the Presbyterian Church. And having looked at a number of the documents, including some that have not been in circulation, I'm convinced he was fired because the Board of Trustees was experiencing wonderful growth at Wheaton College at the time. It was exploding in numbers. And here was a president who himself was doing the work of reform in a denomination, in a church. And it's always scandalous to the kind of people that get put on boards of trustees that their leader would ever be involved in controversy. And so what happened was that the kids at the time, the college students who left, ended up what? Being committed to the church, being committed to continuing the fight to remove unbelievers from the church and her institution? No, 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 no. What they all did was they all went out and they started evangelicalism. And evangelicalism was what? Well, it was Campus Crusade, It was InterVarsity. My father was the first IV staff worker for New England with my mother. It was later Navigators. It became all these organizations, Operation Mobilization, Wycliffe Bible Translators. And what were all of them? Well, an easier way of asking it is, what were not all of them? (laughs) They were not the church. They were not the church. And listen, people, that had catastrophic effects on the witness of the church in the past century. Why? Why do I say that? Well, not because I'm against intervarsity. I actually am now. But I grew up I grew up going to all InterVarsity's camps. My dad would always drive nonstop from Philadelphia to Bear Trap Ranch the top of Cheyenne Mountain behind Colorado Springs, Buena Vista. You know, we'd drive, 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 drive. Didn't have any money to stay at a motel. You just drove straight through. And then he'd speak at Bear Trap Ranch. We'd speak at Cedar Campus. You know, our whole lives were intervarsity. But here's the problem. The problem is parachurch organizations will immediately tell you what? They always say this. They always say, we are not the church. That's what they say. 
And what that does is that gives them wonderful cover for not having any of the nasties. Start with the power of the keys. They say we're not the church, and that means that they don't bind anything on earth or in heaven. They don't have church discipline. They don't have the sacraments, you see? And so immediately, when they're the ones that are given the initiative in preaching the gospel and doing discipleship, immediately, the teeth, you know, the the keys, the no is removed from them. Do you see that? And so all of evangelicalism's growth in the 20th century is without God's no. Because, well... I want to tell you uh, a little story because I think it's helpful. Um, some years ago, I was in East Africa painting some buildings that had just been put up with American money. And while we worked on the buildings, a youth conference was being held in a nearby building, and it was being led by the head of the American Parachurch Organization for East Africa Youth for Christ. A couple days into their conference, I was asked to meet with around 10 pastors who had come to the conference, and I said I'd be glad to meet with them. The youth conference was in the shade inside a building with a good sound system and musicians and instruments, and the head of the whole thing who did most of the speaking. He was about six foot two, exceedingly handsome and winsome and self-confident, a superb communicator, charismatic as could be, and ripped. And I'm telling you, ripped. And wearing clothes that showed it. Informal clothing. More than 500 young people rocking and rolling to his leadership. Hour after hour, day after day. The pastor's meeting was a circle of 10 or so chairs outside under the beating sun, led by a man with paint all over him wearing shorts and a t-shirt, overweight, not ripped at all, with no charisma and no one other than a couple pastors listening. And those couple pastors, well, the Youth for Christ hunk, was dressed casually. His body and charisma were the hook. These pastors were dressed to the nines. They wore fancy suits and fancy leather shoes. Their hair was perfect. And we sat there roasting in the sun. None of us had charisma. And no one young was paying the slightest attention to us. The church leaders, which is to say pastors, could not have been in greater contrast to the parachurch leader. He was big, and they were small. He was strong, and they were thin and weak. He was cool and informal, and they were not hip at all and very formal. He was self-confident and bold, and they were shriveled and shrunken, slouching in their chairs and sweating profusely. Seeing how utterly demoralized they were there that week in the shadow of parachurch hipness and money and dynamism, I asked them if they had anything as pastors that the Youth for Christ leader did not have. It seemed to me they became even more sullen, and I couldn't pull a response out of them. 
And then one pastor said, well, and this is, this is, this is literally true. He said, well, he has all the money because churches in the United States don't want to give money to churches. They want to give money to missions and parachurch organizations. We can't do anything about it. We're helpless. And so this, I asked him. I said, so, so Jesus needs American money in order to build his church, right? What's Jesus going to do without American money? And I didn't smile. And you could see these men, they wanted to please me because I was American. But you could see that maybe I was awakening something in them that was, that was not all positive. And then I said, Are the gates of hell going to prevail against the church without the almighty U.S. dollar? Well, they all looked at me confused, and so then I returned to my earlier question. What do you have as pastors that the Youth for Christ leader doesn't have? And there was still no answer, and it was a long silence. And so I changed the question slightly. What does the church have that the parachurch doesn't have? You know, I knew all of them were feeling the question personally. How could you avoid being jealous of his leadership? It would be impossible. But then you switch it over to the church and the parachurch, and there was another lengthy silence, and then one pastor haltingly asked, he didn't say, but he haltingly asked, he said, the sacraments? And I said, bingo! The sacraments! And we are off and running. Youth for Christ leaders can't baptize or serve the Lord's Supper because they aren't pastors and they don't lead the church. They lead individuals, but you are shepherds set apart by the laying on of hands in prayer to shepherd God's flock, declaring its boundaries, disciplining its members, baptizing its disciples, preaching the gospel, guarding the Lord's table from those who would abuse it. What great dignity and heavy responsibilities our Lord Jesus Christ has delegated to you, to us. And so if parachurch organizations today don't discipline their souls, if they steer clear of doctrine and most biblical truths, if they don't admonish and rebuke, if they don't preach, they don't administer the sacraments, what do they do? Well, they evangelize. They witness. But they're not evangelizing into the church. And so who or what are they evangelizing into? Well, they're evangelizing into the parachurch organization where unity is not a function of the word of God and the doctrines of scripture and the fencing of the Lord's table and one baptism and the use of the power of the keys by the church's officers, but rather of the minimalistic personal relationship with Jesus 
as your Savior. Each of these biblical obligations and commands would have brought division into the parachurch organizations, and so they left them behind. And did the one thing every parachurch organization can do without division, which is witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Parachurch organizations exist to call men to faith in Jesus Christ, and their favorite scripture texts are the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Acts 2, verse, Acts 1, verse 8. First, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Acts 1.8, But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, we listen to those two texts, and immediately we say, say, yeah, that's evangelicalism, that's parachurch organizations, that's their forte, that's where they lodge, that's where they sit, that's their home, that's their reason to exist, right? That's what they use in every single effort to get money from us. They always tell us that they stand, if you, if, if you know Shoemaker, his little poem, I Stand by the Door. Any of you, anybody here know that poem? John Crumb. David knows it. Oh, I wanted to read it, but I, don't, I can't. But it's this wonderful poem about how other people will go deep into the church, but I stand by the door. And says so this guy, just unbelievably proud about the fact that he does not obey everything Jesus commanded because then he'd be deep in the house and wouldn't be able to stand by the door and win everybody to Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? Be very careful about it. By the testimony of parachurch men and women, few things take higher priority in their work than making disciples and witnessing. But let me ask, what kind of disciples are they making and what sort of witnesses are they? And this is where the parachurch organization turns into what I call a perpetual motion machine. Those who disciple turn out disciple makers, and those who witness turn out witnesses. Which is to say, parachurch organizations reproduce clones of themselves. And it's simply assumed that they are doing precisely what Jesus commanded in Matthew 28 and Acts 1.8. Well, actually, they must admit that although they're making disciples, they're not baptizing their disciples. And isn't that what Jesus commanded? Baptize. But no, we don't baptize. And so whatever disciples they're making, immediately they're thrown off the trail of the Great Commission. They say, well, you find a church where you get that stuff done. Well, then what are you doing? Well, we're winning you to Christ, so you'll find a church where you can get that stuff done, right? It's like, listen, well, okay. Actually, they have to admit immediately that although they're making disciples, they're not baptizing their disciples. Once again, they're not the church, and it's the church's prerogative to baptize. When you really get down to it, they're not teaching their disciples to obey 
all that Jesus commanded his disciples either. They only teach them a subset of what Jesus commanded his disciples because time is short and their friends from college days who are on missions committees don't give money to ministries that bore deep into God's truth and commands. Their money flows to ministries that stay shallow but spread out very, very wide. In other words, ministries that are able to tell you how many prayed the sinner's prayer, how many watched the Jesus movie, how many showed up for their campus large group meeting or cell groups last week, how many went on the summer missions project, how many filled soldiers feel for the promise keepers, how many came to their community health meeting, how many show up for English tutoring, how many registered for their conference, and how many bought their book. But disciples of Jesus Christ, how many of them have they made? And how much of what Jesus commanded do they obey? Shouldn't these be the questions asked of those who claim to be fulfilling the Great Commission and who take church missions committees money so that they can give themselves to parachurch ministry full-time? We must ask ourselves what an evangelical missions committee would do with the Apostle Paul. Picture it. You know, I've been preaching forever in Galatians and 1 Corinthians. Forever. And when you preach forever through those books, you begin to know the Apostle Paul. And I'm telling you, the Apostle Paul, everything he does is contrary to the evangelical parachurch organizations. I mean, you, you really have to open the Bible and read his letters and ask yourself whether he would get funded by any missions committee. And, you know, it's, it's humorous. You know, it's a joke. You know, we all laugh. No, nope, he wouldn't. But stop. What does that mean about parachurch organizations? If they would not fund the Apostle Paul, what are they funding? Would they consider him a good candidate for support? Would they find him a powerful presence? Would they think he would make a good witness, that he would be able to get a lot of people to come to his Bible studies and pray the sinner's prayer. More to the point, what would they think of his missions letters reporting on his work? Galatians, for instance. Would they appreciate him naming names of those who betrayed the Lord? Would they appreciate him naming names of those who betrayed him? Would they approve of his hanging out the dirty laundry of the church in Corinth? Would they be thankful for his lengthy exhortations concerning the place of women in the church and home? Campus crusade? How about his commanding women to be silent in the church? His long discourse on such a secondary matter as head coverings. Would they appreciate that section where he explained in detail the meaning and application of God's declaration, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated? And what about all that stuff about election and predestination and God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Listen. Let's be honest and admit that the Apostle Paul is like, 
He's like plastic explosives to the church in America today. You know, we, we read him, we're so familiar with him that we just assume that he's perfectly integrated into the American church, you know. And here's a fantasy. Imagine him coming into our churches. Imagine, you know, picture this. I'd love to have Hollywood make a movie. The Apostle Paul comes to Clear Note Church, Bloomington. Honestly, we must admit that the Apostle Paul is the very opposite of a parachurch leader, a parachurch so-called missionary. He loves the church. He rebukes the church. He admonishes the church. He shames the church. He exhorts the church. He preaches to the church. He evangelizes into the church. He writes letters to the church. He prays for the church. He commands the church. He appoints elders for the church. He pours out his life for the church. He suffers for the church. The church is everything to his Lord, and therefore it is everything to him. And so what's up with us? Jesus commanded us to be witnesses, and the faithful witnesses recorded in the book of Acts were always used by God to build his church. When the apostle Peter witnessed to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, his witness ended with this, Acts 2, beginning with verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. You know, why do we think that in order to get 3,000 souls, we have to avoid repentance? Why do we think that we have to avoid proclaiming God's law to have church growth? And yet this is universally true across America. There is no proclamation to sinners of their particular personal sin. We think that we have to make nice about homosexuality if homosexuals are going to repent. And that's the one thing that they'll never repent from, is us making nice. And why? Because it's a false witness to the holiness of God. kind of witnesses are we? Are we truthful witnesses? Do we tell the truth about God? Or do we lie?
And listen, brothers and sisters, it's universally true across church history. It's universally true that the fathers of the church that have been used to build the church are those who have spoken truth. And they have convicted men under the power of the Holy Spirit of sin. They've proclaimed the law. And that has been the gospel. And under the conviction of the law, men have fled to the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't you remember at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress why it is that Christian goes screaming away from his home? His home. Okay, family values people? (laughs) His home. And he has his, his hands over his ears and he's screaming, life, life, eternal life. And it's because he can't bear the burden of sin that's on his back. And it, he flees to the cross. And this, this is the truth that must not be spoken in the American church. We are unfaithful witnesses. Because what we've done is we've become convinced that the way to grow the church is by us having hip glasses. You know, I almost did it tonight. A year ago, I bought these glasses. I have this great thing called Goggles for You where you can get, I have new glasses tonight. They cost like $18, right? And, and so I bought these thick glasses where the frames are about that thick in the front. It's like, And then the sides are bright yellow, so it's black front, bright yellow sides. And I wanted to wear them tonight. And and why? Because I want to make fun of the church. You know how I can tell a church planner today? Because of the style of his sunglasses. A man who thinks he can grow the church through his microbrew taste and the appearance of his sunglasses and how hip his web page is makes me puke. He doesn't know God. It's godless, it's faithless. If I am the thing that builds this church, <laughs> people we be hurting. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said about himself. What did he say? He said, well, you guys think that I'm nothing, you know? And then, you know, you can, you, you know, it's like the, uh, it's like the Monty Python guy, you know, I ain't dead yet. That's often how I feel about the Apostle Paul. I must be a fool to be talking, I ain't dead yet, you know. His arms are, his legs are, he's got the stripes of Jesus on his back. And he ain't dead yet. And man, the power of God through the Apostle Paul. You read his books, his letters still today, they cut like a knife through my heart. He ends the the book of Galatians. And it's just unbelievably powerful where he, where he says at the very end, he says, from now on, don't any of you give me any because I have the stripes of Jesus Christ on my back. He ain't dead yet.
And so today the witness of the church is stunted. It's eyeglasses, it's microbrew, it's web pages, and it's who comes and who you know and, and who, are, who you're friends with. That's what the church is today. And you go to the witnesses that are recorded in the book of Acts, the witnesses that are recorded in the book of Acts, and what do you find them doing? Tell me this, right? Are you ready? And by the way, when I laugh, if you don't know me, I'm laughing because I'm talking about myself, and I think, so please don't take it personally. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at the way my perverts self thinks. All right? You have to know that about me. All right. Now, the first martyr, Stephen. (laughs) You ready? Okay, so what do his eyeglasses look like? And what kind of web page did he have? And what was his taste in microbrews? And was he in the city for the city? Listen, I won't treat this stuff seriously. It's not worthy of serious treatment. Do you understand me? It's ludicrous. Here is Stephen. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Is is Stephen a serious man? Let, Let me read it to you again, okay? Just in case familiarity had bred contempt and you just couldn't quite get it. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears, how does it feel to be an Israelite, a Jew, and to be told you're uncircumcised? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears are always, not sometimes, not right now, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. People, could you design a better bullet? You couldn't do it. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God. What a way to go. Oh, honestly, I get chills. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Okay, people. That's Stephen. He wasn't even a pastor. He wasn't even an elder. He was a deacon. What a man. He was a witness. And he witnessed to the sinfulness of our hearts. And if you had been there, you might have been one that the Holy Spirit opened your heart and opened your eyes so that you saw your sin and you believed in your Savior. And then you can repent. Here's the deal. And I say this over and over and over again. In America today, we are conceited and think that we have freedom of religion. We have no freedom of religion in America today. None. Because the freedom of religion you have is the freedom to have your religion in private. Do you understand this? And there has never been such a thing as a private religion. Never. Never. Can you imagine a private religion? (laughs) You talk about God being too small, your God being too small. My God is a private God. I hold him very preciously. I caress him in bed at night. You think Stephen's God was a private God? C.S. Lewis is popular to quote, and so I apologize for doing it. But he nailed it. Listen to this. He says, when the modern world says to us aloud, you may be religious when you are alone, it adds under its breath, and I will see to it that you're never alone. To make Christianity a private affair while banishing all privacy is to relegate it to the rainbow's end or the Greek calends. That is one of the enemy's stratagems. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. First Peter three, fifteen, Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Um, those of, in our congregation, the people in our, our congregation have heard me say recently that I love to cut grass because when you're cutting grass, you can't hear anything. And you have plausible deniability and not answering the telephone. And so on my phone, I have Romans. And I listen to Romans over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. If I cut Doug and Heather's and our yard, I can listen to it between one and a half and two times. And here, there are a number of things in Romans that I have come to love. That Jesus... Well, let me read to you, though, this one verse. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, I said one verse, but do you see this? We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we say, well, yeah, the gospel, the good news, you know, that Jesus came to die for our sins, that's good news. But do you, do you see how the Apostle Paul does it? Immediately he goes into the wrath of God. being, And immediately he says, they know the truth. They know the righteousness of God. God has revealed it to them. And so let me end with this. Love the church. Love the church. If the church rebukes you and admonishes you, they may get it wrong. Your mother got it wrong all the time. And so does the church get it wrong. Love the church and submit to her discipline, number one. Number two, be done with parachurch organizations. Just be done with them. I was talking to a man in our church who is at a a very reputable university, which I will not name. And he was telling me how helpful a certain parachurch organization is to him. He's here. And and so I, I, I asked him, I said, so tell me, did they ever talk to you about the meaning of sexuality? No. Well, there's something Jesus commanded that is not taught, all right? And it seems like it's pretty important for college students, right? The meaning of sexuality. You know, Kinsey Institute, you know, 
So then I said to him, I asked him some other questions about how they care for his soul, right? And he answered the questions, but it was very clear to me that there were a few carefully controlled areas where they were willing to be personal with him. He said that one of the things he appreciated is they got together with him every week. But then again, I said, well, they talk to you about what it means for you to be a man as opposed to a person. Well, no, no, they don't talk about that stuff. So then I said to him, now, how many of them are there? And then I asked, how many people attend your group? And so very quickly, I calculated the probable budget for that campus parachurch ministry at that university, right? And what I figured out is, it's so depressing. There was one full-time staff worker for every seven and a half college students involved in the ministry. Oh! 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 And this is what I've lived with as long as I've been in Bloomington. I've kept track meticulously. Navigators, Campus Crusade, InterVarsity, those stats would look burdensome for InterVarsity. Listen, there is absolutely no way that I can preach the biblical doctrine of the church and call you to it without saying no today to parachurch ministries. That's what you want me to do. You want me to talk about the glory of the church. And I say, it has a competitor for your heart, for your money, for your time, for your missions committees. And you say, well, don't talk about the competitor. Only little men do that. And I say, well, yeah, that's what everybody tells me. I'm such a little man. Be done with them. Be done with them. Do not give your time, your love, your money. Don't give except to the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know. That just seems right to me. Because when I open the Bible and I look at the witness of the Christians in the book of Acts, I don't see anything resembling it. In most of what I have grown up living in the midst of as a child of Wheaton, Illinois. Okay? And if we're going to love the church, it's going to have a real cost. It's going to cost us submission when we don't want to listen. It's going to cost us time. This, this really is the end, Jared. Okay, this really is the end. All right. Now listen. You know, do you realize how much time the Jews spent in Jerusalem? One of the implications of this is that you should not resent and be depressed about giving time to the preaching of God's word and to fellowship like this. You should love to give your time to your church. That's a real implication of this, that fellowship, you remember what it says about the first church in Jerusalem? It says they were devoted to what? The teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. 
And so try to fill up more of your Lord's Day with the church. All right, I'm done. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will give us a love for the church that causes us to say no to all of the posers who try to have the glory and neglect the cost. And Father, we pray that you will restore in our hearts a tender affection and love for the bride of Christ, particularly when she rebukes us and admonishes us and corrects us and our children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.